Ecclesiastes, and let's do the uh, smart thing here and have a quick word of prayer. Heavenly Fathers, we just come to you now. We just ask for your blessing upon this message. As always, Lord, um, you wrote it, Lord. We just pray you would teach it through the Spirit. Give us wisdom. Give us guidance and direction. We may just go deeper in our walks and relationships with you. In your name we pray. Amen. Ecclesiastes is, uh, is quite the book. If you've never really studied it out before, it is arguably up there with Lamentations, the most depressing book in the entire Bible. So we will have fun here over the next few weeks. In fact, after the first service, when I handed the microphone to Alan, Alan just looks at me and goes, boy, that was depressing. So we'll have a good time here for the next 45 minutes. Um, the reason this book, first off, it is not depressing. This book is realistic. And I encourage you as you go through this, there are some thoughts that come across here that this is a tough book. And the reason Ecclesiastes is a tough book is because this book is written from the perspective of a man who's going backwards in his walk instead of forwards in his walk. This book is written from the perspective of somebody who is not where they're supposed to be in their relationship with the Lord. And this is their thoughts at this time. Imagine this. Take the darkest spiritual time you've ever had in your life. Now imagine if someone recorded 12 chapters of what you were thinking at that time. You'd be kind of a little embarrassed by it. You'd probably have thoughts like, why pray? Prayer doesn't work. What's the point? We all just die anyway. God doesn't care. We've all had those thoughts before. The thing about Ecclesiastes is Ecclesiastes just honestly bring those thoughts to the service. Now, all of us sitting here today are all going to look at each other and say, God bless you and I love Jesus. Truth of the matter is, some of you are in Ecclesiastes moment right now. You're sick and tired of being sick and tired. You, you are having these thoughts of, I don't get this, Lord. You know, we say we're supposed to pray and you hear and you respond and things happen, but I prayed for this. I prayed for my kid. I prayed for my marriage. I prayed for my life, my job, and nothing changes. That's an Ecclesiastes moment. You're the one that you hear those things of how much God loves you and God cares. And whatever you're facing, he's there for you. Yeah, but why am I the one that got diagnosed with this? Why am I the one whose body is falling apart? Yeah, where's God at this moment? Those are Ecclesiastes moments. This book is an honest book. The problem is some groups have taken this book and taken some of these thoughts and made theology out of it. This Bible is, excuse me, this book is God's word. But this is God's word of an honest person with honest thoughts sometimes aren't necessarily biblical, but they're true. So the reason we study through this is to say, you know what, I've been there before. I've had those Ecclesiastes moments. Everybody has. Elijah had Ecclesiastes moments. He uh, was so overworked with his ministry and Jezebel trying to kill him, he went in the wilderness and said, Lord, take my life. It's not worth it. Peter, after he failed with Christ and, and did not stand up for him and disowned Jesus, Peter said, I give up. I'm going back fishing. Moses gave up, Abraham gave up, David gave up. Everybody has had these Ecclesiastes moments of this is just not worth it. I wish I wasn't here. This is not how life is supposed to be. We've all had those moments. These moments now are just recorded. Once again, imagine 12 chapters of you in your darkest spiritual day and those thoughts you said, those things that you thought. Boy, all recorded for history. This is probably the most honest book in the entire Bible. Who was it written by? It's probably written by Solomon. Look at verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. In verse 12, I, the preacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. The author of this book goes on and on and talks about his wealth and his wisdom, etc. So I think it's a pretty safe bet to say this is probably Solomon here. Key, key word that comes across is vanity. Look at verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Some of your translations may say meaningless there. This word vanity, depending on your translation, is going to be used over 30 times in this book. One commentator described it as this, the futile emptiness of trying to be happy apart from God. I like that statement. The futile emptiness of trying to be happy apart from God. Remember, this book is written from the perspective of a person going backwards, not forwards. 
It is that moment in time of the pity party, of the woe is me, or as I like to say, it's the Eeyore moment. No one likes me. No one understands me. Just we all have those moments. It's one long letter of woe is me. So now why are we going through it? Because the truth of the matter is some of us are in these Ecclesiastes moments now. And if you're not in this Ecclesiastes moment now, you're going to be at some time in your life. Because that's what happens. Now, I have a tendency out here at church to take a long time to go through books. I don't know if some of you have noticed that or not. Uh, Nancy was working on some stuff uh, this week and getting some time frames of when we've gone through books. Because I've kind of lost track of when we've gone through books and, and what we've done and haven't done in the last 11 years. And so there was one year she was looking at this and she was like, do you realize how long you take to get through some books? So, with Ecclesiastes, it's only 12 chapters, but the point about this one is we're actually going to go at a fairly quick pace. We're going to do the first two chapters today because compared to other books, Ecclesiastes is one long, continuous thought. Once again, imagine if you in your darkest time just took a half hour, 45 minutes and wrote down everything you're thinking. That's Ecclesiastes. This is not like Proverbs that has different authors or Isaiah that is broken up into different prophecy segments. This is one long, continuous thought of what is going on here. What's the point of all this? Now, you have to know, because some of you may have to leave halfway through or something, it ends good. I want to make sure you know that, okay? So yes, it's kind of depressing, it's kind of discouraging, but it ends good, because by the end of the book, Solomon says, I got it figured out. It's God and God alone. And that's what we're going to get to here as we go through this. So with that being said, once again, verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That word vanity literally means breath or vapor. Imagine going out on a cool morning and, and you see your breath come out and it immediately disappears. Solomon is saying that's life. It's just a breath. It's just a vapor. It's so quick and over, it's meaningless. Verse 3, what profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? One generation passes away and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. The sun also rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rose. The wind goes towards the south and turns around to the north. The wind whirls about continually and it comes again on its circuit. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rivers come, there they return again. All things are full of labor. Man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Now, is this not a description of some of us some days? Verse 3, I get up, I go to work, I go home. I just work and work and work. That's all I do. Verse 4, I live and then I die. Verse 5, the sun comes up, the sun goes down. Verses 6 through 7, the wind goes north, the wind goes south. It rains, it pours, sometimes it doesn't. This just meaningless repetition of life. Every day is the same. I'm going to get up tomorrow, I'm going to go work, spend eight, nine hours working, come home, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to eat supper, do some laundry, clean the house, I'm going to get up the next day and go to work and come home again. That depressing cycle of just doing it again and again. The sun's going to come up, the sun's going to come down. It's going to rain some days, some days it's not going to rain. This meaningless, vainless repetition of life. And he sums it up in verse 8. The result of this, I'm not happy. The eye is not satisfied, the ear is filled, nor is the ear filled with hearing. I'm not happy. This isn't how I want my life to be. Now you've got to remember, this is written from the perspective of somebody apart from God. I'm telling you right now, if you're here today and you're living your life without the Lord, your, your life is very meaningless. It's very pointless. If your life truly is, I get up and go to work tomorrow and come home and do the same thing on Tuesday, do the same thing Wednesday, my goodness, that is a depressing thought. If your life has nothing centered around the Lord in any way whatsoever, your life is vanity, your life is meaningless. It really is. Once again, we have to jump to the end of this. And generally, we don't do this with books because we like to build up to it. But it's important for you to see how this ends. Jump to the end of Ecclesiastes 12 real quick. 
You can see how Solomon finally sums this up as he goes through this book. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. See, that's the point. The point is, get your life on the Lord, and therefore your life is not pointless or meaningless. You've heard us say out here before, the most miserable person in the world is a believer who knows what they should be doing and then aren't doing it. Because they go into the world to find satisfaction and pleasure, and they can't because they're convicted. So they come into the church hoping to find that peace of God, and God says, I would love to give you peace. There's this whole sin problem we've got to deal with. See, Solomon is this guy that has the wisdom of the Lord. He knows what God expects out of him, but he's not doing it. He's miserable. If your life is work and life without God, then your life is a vapor. It is absolutely pointless, and to be quite honest, it is meaningless. That's the point of Ecclesiastes. In fact, so much so, in Ecclesiastes 6, Solomon comes right out and says, better if I was never born. Now, how many of you have ever had that thought? Man, what's the point of me even being here? I'd be better if I was never born. It's that whole, it's a wonderful life moment. What's the point? See, the thing is, we're just not honest about those thoughts. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing good. Thanks for asking. No, I'm not doing good. I'm praying and nothing's happening. I'm reading, getting nothing out of it. I'm serving and hating it. I hate my life. See, that's Ecclesiastes. I don't like my life. Life without the Lord is very meaningless and pointless. So Solomon comes to that conclusion. He goes, I'm going to try to change it now. Verse 9, that which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. And there's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which may be said, see, this is new. It's already been in ancient times before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are come by those who come after. He goes, I can't change it. I try and I fail. That which is done has already been done. There's nothing new under the sun. We were talking about this at a men's study a few weeks ago, about this idea of sin. We think sin is such a horrible problem today where sin has been around for thousands of years. The only reason it looks worse today is just more prevalent. You just turn on the television and it's right there. Sin's always been there. There's nothing new under the sun. Verse 11, there's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who come after. You know, we, we think we're going to remember all these great, mighty things, and we don't. Right now, uh, Dawn's having Elias go through this History Channel thing and watching little snippets and all the presidents. I absolutely love history, and I love sitting there and watching it. But how many of us could name something significant about uh, Fillmore or James K. Polk or Martin Van Buren? These men were presidents of the United States. These men were elected and they served for years. But yet now, a couple hundred years later, some of you are saying, who's Polk? <laughs> who's Van Buren? <laughs> you know, who's Fillmore? Who are these guys? That's the point of verse 11. There is this meaningless existence of life. I try, I fail, and what happens? I die, and no one cares. Now, isn't that what we sometimes think? Now, you may not be thinking that, but I guarantee you right now you work with people who are going to drop those lines sometimes. What's the point of all this? That's Ecclesiastes. So what is the point of all of it? Verses 9 through 11. You try and you fail. You're trying to fail. Nothing new under the sun. This is where faith has to kick, and you have to realize the concept spiritually of seed planting. When you plant seeds, you don't see the fruit at that moment. You are trusting in faith that God will do that later on. And you've heard us use this analogy many times. We live in a farming community. Winter wheat is put in in the fall. It will not produce a crop until June or July. Does that mean that winter wheat right now is a complete and utter failure? No. It's It's working. It's doing its thing, but it's not going to happen to June or July. Same thing happens spiritually. Well, I prayed and nothing happened. Wow, one prayer, that's impressive. But isn't that the mindset we have? I prayed and nothing happened. Our McDonald's fast food society, I asked God to do this, and I waited a good five seconds and nothing 
happened? What happens if God says the answer is coming in weeks? You know, it says in the book of Daniel that when Daniel prayed, immediately the answer went out, but it took three weeks for the answer to get to him. Are we patient enough to wait three weeks? Well, James, I've been waiting three weeks. Okay, you're patient enough to wait three months, three years, 30 years? Let's just be honest. Sometimes we're not. And so, therefore, when our lack of patience comes up, we have Ecclesiastes moments. I pray and nothing happens. I try to do this and nothing happens. And we get into this woe is me, your moment. Seed planting. Galatians 6, 9, if you're taking notes. Galatians 6, 9 says, Let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we shall reap. Don't grow weary in doing good. You are planting seeds into your marriage, into your kids, into ministry. You are planting seeds into that, and you may not see the fruit right now. Ecclesiastes wants you to become whiny and complaining, and it's not happening. For God says, do you have faith to trust that these seeds are being planted and that you will see the fruit and increase soon enough? Ecclesiastes says, let's get our mind where it's supposed to be, on the Lord, and trust in that planting of seeds. Let's not give faith, give up faith so quick. Let's be diligent to trust that God's moving even when we don't see it. So he says, I'm going to try to figure this out. First thing he tries to use to figure this out, his first attempt, is wisdom. Verse 12, I, the preacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. This burdensome task God has given to the sons of man by which they may be exercised. I have seen all the works that are done under the heaven. Indeed, all is vanity and grasping for the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be numbered. I communed with my heart, saying, Look, I have attained greatness and have gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge. And I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this is also grasping for the wind. For in much wisdom is much grief, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Solomon says wisdom didn't have the answers for him. You know, I know a lot of people that have a lot of letters after their name. And they are very intelligent according to the world. But they have no spiritual wisdom of God in any way whatsoever. I even know people that claim to be Christians that have a lot of letters after their name. And their relationship with Christ has become an intellectual relationship with Christ rather than a relationship based on faith. I'm not saying wisdom is wrong. Godly wisdom is a wonderful, wonderful gift. And we just studied a whole book on Proverbs about seeking godly wisdom. But wisdom, apart from God, is meaningless. I've shared with you before, I absolutely hated, hated college. It's one of some of the most pointless things I've ever done in my life because at that time I was a believer I was serving out here at church. I saw the eternal perspective, and I thought, there is such a meaningless vanity in the man's wisdom of what it is. I'm not saying go to college, don't go to college. I'm not saying that. But there was such a meaningless vanity in a lot of the things we do for the sake of wisdom. I mean, you guys all, you know, when you're out there working your jobs, and you have to go through quote-unquote training, sometimes you look at that training and say, what's the point of this? Man's wisdom is not all it's cracked up to be. What Solomon is saying here is, I got man's wisdom. And it was nothing without God. Nothing without God. Turn, if you will, to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let's talk a little bit about man's wisdom here and how smart man thinks that we are. Wisdom without God is meaningless. It's vanity. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. As you're going to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I'm actually going to read this out of the uh, New Living Translation. I like the way this translation reads it here. 1 Corinthians 1. And uh, we're going to go ahead and start right around verse 18. Verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 1. The message of the cross... It's foolish to those who are heading for destruction, but we who are being saved know is the very power of God. Right there, that verse is so vital. Do you realize how foolish the world thinks Christians are? I mean, you guys are here on a Sunday morning. That's foolishness to the world. To come on a Wednesday night, that's foolishness. To serve on a Saturday, that's foolishness. To help in the back, that's foolishness. Why do we do that? Why do we jump through these hoops? 
They don't understand what it means to be born again in Christ. The world thinks we're foolish. Turn the other cheek, show love to the unlovables. Come on, that's foolishness. That's not the way the world works. That's why that term is being born again. Your nature has to change in Christ. And until your nature changes in Christ, we're going to be like the world. How do you explain to the non-believers the importance of a relationship with Christ? best analogy I ever heard was a pastor say one time, they said it's like trying to explain colors to someone who's been blind from birth. How do you explain colors to someone who can't see? They're, well, there's different shades. Uh, it just doesn't work. To try to go up to the world that is not saved and say, this is why I do what I do. It's just foolishness to them. And until they are born again in Christ, they don't fully understand it. The Bible says there's a veil over their eyes. So the wisdom of the world makes perfect sense to the world, obviously. But we look like fools. Verse 19, as Scripture says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, and the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. Since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. Do you realize that point? The world will never know God through human wisdom. I think this is a concept that has now been forgotten in Christianity. Someone will be saved when their heart is born again in Christ. When they are convicted by the Spirit and they say, this is not the way I want my life to be, and I realize there is a heaven and there is a hell, and because there is a hell, I don't want to go to hell. God, I want your everlasting love and forgiveness, so therefore I accept Christ. See, that's faith. problem is, as Christianity, we've become so wise in how we present the gospel. I remember years ago when we were uh, starting up Campus Crusade over at Northwest State, there was a guy, boy, had a heart for the lost. I mean, an absolute heart for the lost. And, and he was really big... Um, into this step-by-step uh, -step way of how to present the gospel. And that's fine. You know, I, I have read books on that. I've seen things on that where, you know what, you say this and you say this, and it's kind of a step-by-step -step way to present the gospel. The way I've always looked at it is each situation is unique. Let the Spirit lead. This guy had this step-by-step -step way, and that's worked for him. So he was sitting down talking to this kid in the atrium at Northwest, and he started his step-by-step -step way to share the gospel. And, and the kid right away said, man, this is what I've been wanting. This is exactly what I want. I want to have this relationship with Christ. I want this. I want it. I, this is what I want. Well, this guy that was sharing the gospel, he didn't know what to do. Because the guy went from step one to step five. There's four steps in between. And so he didn't know how to jump to step five, so he did step two, then step three, then step four. And eventually the guy got saved, which thank the Lord for. But you see that human wisdom. Well, this is how we do it. This, this, this is how it works. The one thing I've learned out here uh, being a pastor is it may have worked the one time, but each situation is unique and different. You never know what the Lord's going to do. Human wisdom will never have us know God personally. And, and this is what 1 Corinthians 1 is, is trying to tell us. Jump ahead here a little bit. Uh, verse 25. It says, This foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans, and God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose the things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And He chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose the things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. Human wisdom will never have us understand who the Lord is. As we said in Proverbs, he's unsearchable. But Solomon decided to say, hey, the first step here is I'm going to figure out God. I'm going to figure out this meaning and purpose of life. He gets to the end of it and says, nothing good came out of this other than verse 18. Much wisdom is grief. 
And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I'm telling you right now, apart from the Lord, the more you learn, I'm going to go on a limb and say probably the sadder you're going to be. Because the more you fill your head with the wisdom of the world, you're leaving less room for a relationship with Christ. And I know a lot of people that claim to be saved, yet their salvation is the salvation based on wisdom and knowledge. It's faith. That's what it is. So does that mean we ignore wisdom? Of course not. We just have to make sure we get our wisdom from the right spot. If you're taking notes, just write down these two verses. The first one's Colossians 2. Colossians 2, verses 2 through 3. It says, wisdom comes through Christ. Then in Colossians 3.16, in Colossians 3.16, it says wisdom comes through God's word. I mean, isn't this just Proverbs repeated? The next time you're facing a decision in life, why not in prayer go to the Lord? Why not seek what God's word has to say? See, God's word was given to us as a plan to follow to keep us safe and from harm. And when we get out of the plan of God's word, we're no longer walking in wisdom. We're walking in what we think is best. And haven't we just proven the point that human wisdom is pointless and meaningless? It all comes down to the Lord. Seriously, jump back in your life. How many choices, if you could go back in time and make them different, would save you from a lot of heartache and pain? Because you'd make those choices in the wisdom of God and his word rather than in the wisdom of man. So Solomon says, I'm going to figure this out. He goes, I can't. Wisdom doesn't do it. I have all the wisdom and I still can't figure this out. This life is still meaningless. It's still pointless. So he says, now I'm going to try pleasure. Verse 1 of chapter 2, I said in my heart, come now. I'll test you with mirth. Therefore, enjoy pleasure. But surely this also is vanity. I said of laughter, madness, and of mirth, what does it accomplish? I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine while guiding my heart with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly so I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their lives. I made my works great. I built myself houses and planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards. I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools from which to water the growing trees of the grove. I acquired male and female servants and had servants born in my house. Yes, I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the special treasures of kings and of the providences. I acquired male and female singers, the delights of the son of men, and musical instruments of all kinds. I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Awesome, also my wisdom remained with me. Now don't we know people like this? We all know someone who said, the car is going to make me happy, the, the, the boat's going to make me happy, the house is going to make me happy. They thought those things would bring joy. Now we as Christians know that that's not right. There's no material thing that's going to bring you joy. Solomon had every material thing that he could win. If you go back and read the history books in the Bible, arguably Solomon was the wealthiest man that ever lived. He had anything and everything, and the point of it still was vanity. It was worthless. But here's the thing. As Christians, we know this, right, because we're super smart. But the problem is, as Christians, sometimes we're not seeking the things of the world. We seek the things of ministry. You know, I, I'm, I'm going to find happiness in my marriage. I just get the right Christian spouse, there will be such a joy there. Or I will find I have such joy in my kids. Or I will have such joy in my ministry. Serving God will bring me joy and fulfillment. No, they won't. I love Dawn with all my heart. I'm thankful she just walked out right this moment. I love her with all my heart. Dawn does not bring me joy. God brings me joy. I love my kids with all my heart. My kids don't bring me joy. God does. I love you guys. I love this place. You guys don't bring me joy. I'll tell you that, you know. I'm saying is, the point is, there's nothing in this world that brings joy other than the Lord. Nehemiah 8.10 says, The joy of the Lord is my strength. If you are looking to your spouse for fulfillment and joy, you're going to be left empty. If you think having kids is going to bring you joy and fulfillment, you're going to be left empty. If you think some type of ministry, Bible study is going to bring you joy and fulfillment, you will be left empty. If you're a single saying, Boy, if I could just find the right person, I'd be happy. No, you won't. Joy and fulfillment come truly from the Lord and the Lord alone. Galatians 5 says the fruit of the Spirit is joy. 
There's nothing in this world that can bring you joy other than the Lord. Now, Dawn and I have joy in our marriage. We have joy with our kids. And I have a lot of joy out here at church. I really do. But those things don't bring me joy. It's the Lord that brings me joy. And what Solomon is saying here is, in verses 1 through 9 of Ecclesiastes 2, he goes, everything in the world is not going to bring you that happiness and that fulfillment. But we still think that will happen. One of the first things I always say in marriage counseling when it comes up is, oh, my my, my spouse isn't making me happy. Your spouse is not going to make you happy. Don't look to your spouse to make you happy. Don't look to the church to make you happy. Don't look to the pastor to make you happy. Don't look to serving God to make you happy. Because as you've heard us say before, sometimes ministry is more of a stressing than a blessing. Your joy comes from the Lord and the Lord alone. If my joy is based in dawn, God forbid what happens if something happens to dawn. I can no longer have joy. If my kids were the source of my joy, what happens when they move out? If this church was the source of my joy, what happens when the Lord leads me to a different place? My joy is gone? No, the joy of the Lord is my strength. And Solomon is trying to say here, all this pleasure, everything that we think is going to bring us some type of happiness and joy, it's not going to do it. We know the material things of this world will not do it. Do we realize sometimes the immaterial things of this world? They're not going to do it either. Joy comes from the Lord and the Lord alone, and that is the only thing that's going to bring you joy and strength. If you're looking towards anything, relationships, work, kids, marriage, serving, ministry, worship, I don't know what it is, whatever area you serve in or help in, if that's what you think is going to bring you a joy in life, you're missing it out because it's the joy of the Lord and everything. You know what happens when you stop and you think about that? Some of you probably sit here right now and say, well, I hate my life. Jump ahead to verse 17. Therefore, I hated life. Isn't that the truth? When you look at life without God, it's vanity. It is meaningless. It is pointless. So hence, life without God, you would hate your life. That's the point, because if you don't have the Lord, what is the purpose of all this? Isn't it interesting, verse 17, he says, Therefore I hated life, but what did Jesus say in John 10.10? Therefore I come that you may have life, have it more abundantly. It's Christ and Christ alone. And I know people, and you know people, that are trying to live in the world and bring joy, and they think those possessions will do it, and the truth of the matter is they won't. But the thing is, I also know people in the church and the body of Christ that is trying to bring joy through different things, once again, marriage, ministry, kids, whatever, That's not going to bring it either. Your joy comes from the Lord and the Lord alone. Solomon comes to this. He goes, wisdom's not going to bring me a a meaningful life. Neither is joy. Look at verse 10. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was the reward for my labor. He had a temporary joy in his things, but, verse 11, then I looked on all the works that my hands had done, all the labor in which I had toiled, and indeed all was vanity. And grasping for the wind, there is no profit under the sun. Because it's meaningless. Wisdom is meaningless. The possessions are meaningless. Laughter, verse 2, meaningless. So here's the thing. I know some people that have never come out and had an Ecclesiastes moment. The reason they don't have it is, verse 2, they cover their Ecclesiastes moments with laughter. They use humor as a weapon, as a defense. They still feel the same way. We all have these moments, guys. We all have these moments of why pray, why read, why study, why serve, why even be alive. What's the point of all this? It's just a constant play, repeat, play, repeat, do the same things over and over again. I work, I go home, I work, I go home, I do it again. What is the point? And that's where, once again, the purpose of Ecclesiastes is, if you're living your life without God, what is the point? Solomon is telling us, wisdom will not bring it to you, pleasure will not bring it to you. It all has to be the Lord. So now after Solomon comes to these conclusions, it's not wisdom, it's not pleasure. Well, what's his opinion of this in verse 12? Then I turned myself to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who succeeds the king? Only what he's already done. 
And I saw that wisdom exceeds folly, as light excels darkness. The, man's, the wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet I myself perceive that the same event happens to them all. So I said in my heart, as it happens to the fool, it also happens to me. And why was I then more wise? And I said in my heart, this is also vanity. For there is no more remembrance of the wise and of the fool forever, since all that now is will be forgotten in the days to come. And how does a wise man die? It's the fool. That's not just an honest assessment. The person with the college degree dies the same as the person with no education. The person with the 10,000-square-foot mansion dies the same as the person living in the cardboard box. The person with millions in their bank account dies the same as the person with an empty bank account. Solomon says this is just vanity. He goes, I spend all my life working, all my life working to do what? Die, to leave it to somebody else who I don't know what they're going to do with it. And so I die in my wisdom, my glory, my palace, my kingdom. I'm still going to die just like the person who has absolutely nothing. He goes, that's just a pointless existence. Once again, life without God is pointless. Solomon is starting to get this now. So now he says in verse 17, Therefore, I hated life, because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me for all his vanity and grasping for the wind. Does that describe how you feel sometimes? I just hate it. I hate my life. I, I just absolutely hate my life. It, it, it's distressing. I'm grasping for the wind. It's meaningless. It's pointless. I, I hate the existence of my life right now, and this is not how I want to be. Now, if you're not saved, I have to point you towards Christ because he's the one that gives the purpose and meaning. Jeremiah 29, 11. God says, I know the thoughts that I have for you, thoughts of peace, of, of a future. God has a wonderful plan for your life. He really does. But you may be now sitting here saved saying, okay, James, I'm saved, and I'm looking at this wonderful plan God has for my life, and it's not too wonderful at this moment. Well, Solomon would also tell us here in a little bit, there's seasons of life. And we have some seasons of life that are not pleasant. We have seasons of life of physical pain. We have seasons of life of emotional pain. We have seasons of life of spiritual pain. Now the question comes, in those Ecclesiastes moments, what are you going to do? Are you going to be the Elijah that say, Lord, take my life, it's not worth it? Are you going to be the Peter that gives up on the faith and just goes back to fishing? Are you going to be the Moses that runs? Or are you going to stop and say, you know what, God, I have to trust you. In faith, I can look through this darkness. I don't know what's going to happen, but I trust you're going to get me through this. I could trust Galatians 6, 9. I'm going to plant seeds even though I don't see the fruit. I'm going to trust Colossians 2 and 3, that wisdom in Christ, wisdom in God's word will get me through this. I'm going to trust in John 10, 10, that Jesus said he's come to give me life. It's tough. And you know what? I'm going to be honest. I've said the verse 17 before. I've said the phrase of I hate my life because we get caught up in the emotion of the situation. And boy, I've been on the other end of it too. I've said it. I've also heard it. I've had people come in, and I hate my life. I hate everything about my life. Nothing good ever happens in my life. And I, I, I pray, I read, I do, and nothing ever changes, etc. Had a situation a few years ago. I had a person come in, and they just, they were in Ecclesiastes moment. So I, I watched the clock, and I let them go. And for 15 minutes, I let them write their little book of Ecclesiastes. So they got done. They were left to what to say. I've never seen somebody complain so much they ran out of things to complain about. And so after 15 minutes, I just looked at them and said, are you done? Are you done? That was what the Spirit led. I'm not saying do it every time because sometimes I will blow up in your face. I tried it with somebody the next week and it didn't work. But at that point, are you done? And they really stopped and they thought, yeah, I am done. And I don't mean done as a giving up on life. They're done with that moment of, yeah, okay, I, that, that, it is a meaningless thing. i got to get my eyes back on the Lord. See, the problem is sometimes your Ecclesiastes moments last for 15 minutes. Sometimes they last for 15 days. Sometimes they last for 15 months. Sometimes they last for 15 years. We all are going to go through them, but what are you going to do in the middle of it? Are you going to be Eeyore? Are you just going to whine and complain and mope and have excuses and nothing good ever happens to me? Oh, woe is me. Verse 17, I hate life. You can go down that path if you want. But Solomon, 
thousands of years ago said, guys, I've already gone down the path for you. It's meaningless. It's pointless. Don't go down that path. Get your eyes back on the Lord. Verse 18. Then I hated all my labor in which I had toiled under the sun, because I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows, verse 19, whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will rule over all my labor in which I toiled and in which I have shown myself wise under the sun. This is also vanity. Therefore I turned my heart and despaired of all the labor in which I had toiled under the sun. For there is a man whose labor is with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, yet he must leave his heritage to a man who has not labored for it. This is also vanity and a great evil. Think about all that work you put into stuff. You're going to die. Sorry. I mean, I know people have spent countless hours doing a beautiful remodel of a house. You're going to die. Someone else is going to come in and remodel what you remodeled. You're going to go to work tomorrow, and you're going to pour your soul into this company and, and, and try to do what you can. And once you retire, you're going to be forgotten. Someone's going to come in and say, I can't believe the guy before me did it this way. See, these are all honest statements of life. And if we would just stop at this moment, it is meaningless pointless, it's vanity, and it's depressing. I can't stress to you enough with Ecclesiastes. Life without God is depressing. There's no way around that. Life without God is meaningless. I work and I die. I sacrifice and sacrifice and I labor and I look back on it and what happens to it? Nothing. I'm going to die. This is where you have to stop and say eternal work versus earthly work. The eternal work goes on and on and on. What's the eternal work? How many times have we said it out here? Your two purposes in life are to do what? Spread the gospel of Jesus Christ and to glorify his name. Those are the eternal things you do. That is why you are here. If you're sitting here saying, Lord, what's my purpose? I, I can relate to this Ecclesiastes thing. I'm working and laboring and nothing's happening. Okay. Forget about work for a little bit. Are you spreading the gospel of Christ? Are you taking time to glorify the name of Jesus? Those are the two reasons God said he's created you. Those are what's going to give you a meaningful purpose in life. And I'm not saying that every day you have to be shoving the gospel down somebody's throat. Do something eternal. When that co-worker comes and talks complaining, hey, I'll pray for you. You may not be sitting there and laying out the five-step plan of salvation. You're planting a spiritual seed of this person knows if they come to me, I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to pray. You may have times right now where you say, James, I have nothing to give God the glory on. That's the best time to worship. You worship God for who he is, not necessarily what he's done. He's always worthy of worship because of the grace and mercy salvation that he gives us. Solomon is trying to tell us here, this meaningless life is meaningless without God. See what happens here now, verse 23. For all his days are sorrowful and his work burdensome. Even in night his heart takes no rest. This is also vanity. Isn't that the world right there? Sorrowful days, burdensome work, and no rest at night. That's life without God. And if you're sitting here today and saying, James, that's not life without God, that's my life. Okay, if your days are sorrowful, have you turned your heart over to the one that gives comfort? God says that he's the God of comfort. Is your work burdensome? Have you realized that Jesus said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, and my heart takes no rest? Why don't you give your nights over to the God that says in the book of Isaiah that neither sleeps nor slumbers? See, if this is your life, as verse 23, I agree with you. It's vanity, it's meaningless, it's pointless. But whatever sorrow, burden, or heartache you have, you give over to the Lord and you allow him to work at it. Now, don't go full circle now and start saying, well, James, I've done that and nothing ever happens. Go back to what we talked about earlier. Plant the seeds, trust in faith that the increase will come. Your Ecclesiastes moments may go on for quite some time, but you have to trust that God is there working through it and still taking care of it. Verse 24, nothing is better for a man that he should eat and drink and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. This I also saw was from the hand of God. For who can eat or who can have enjoyment more than I? Now, some of your newer translations, instead of saying more than I, are going to say without him. And it's carrying a nice connotation there of if whatever you do, if you're not doing it with the Lord, what's the point of it? 
Verse 26, for God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man who is good in his sight. But to the sinner, he gives the work of gathering and collecting that he may give to him who is good before God. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. Look how that sums up so nicely. Who gives wisdom? God. Who gives knowledge? God. Who gives joy? God. If you are searching for wisdom and knowledge apart from the Lord, it is vain, it's meaningless, it's pointless. If you are searching for joy apart from the Lord, it's vanity, it's meaningless. That's the truth of it. Ecclesiastes is here to remind us, whatever we do, it is done in the Lord, because if it's not done in the Lord, what is the point of it? What is the point of it? Solomon went through this Ecclesiastes depression so that we can now, thousands of years later, stop and say, okay, I don't want to go down that path. That path will lead to discouragement. It will lead to depression. It will lead to division. I don't want to do that. Lord, I want to realize, verse 26, you give wisdom, you give knowledge, and you give joy. Do not allow the circumstances of your life to dictate your joy. Your joy is based on the never-changing God. That's what gives you joy to get through life. Does that mean you like everything that comes your way? Of course not. We'll get into that next week. But there is a joy that is a stable joy that gets you through all things in life because you know that God is there and he's the joy of your heart. And once again, Nehemiah 18, the joy of the Lord is my strength. What we learn here in the first two chapters of Ecclesiastes is wisdom, pleasure, life, it really is meaningless. Work, labor, it's meaningless. But when you have your eyes on the Lord, work now has a purpose. Pleasure has a purpose. Life has a purpose. And it's all done through the filter of God to remind us and to encourage us. It's done through the Lord. He gives life. If you're at verse 17 right now, if I hate my life. If you're at verse 23 right now, sorrowful, burdensome, and no rest in my heart. Well, you've got to throw it on the Lord. Let him carry those heavy loads for you. Let him take care of it. And if you don't know how to do that, grab one of us afterwards. We'll pray with you. We'll encourage you. We'll point you in the right direction. Because it's all for the Lord. And Ecclesiastes is trying to tell us this. Don't get your eyes off the Lord. You'll sink. And we've probably all been in those spots in life right now where we've sunk a few times. It's like, God, I don't want to go down that path again. It's not worth it. Marv, come forward here for the